0: This is the East TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester,
1: Minnesota.
2: And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
0: This program is brought to you by
1: the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of
2: Trauma. Advancing science.
0: Fostering relationships. And building careers. Hey everybody, it's Levi Proctor here, and we have another great podcast for you today from our East TraumaCast series. Uh, joining us today are two people. First one is Dr. Matthew Martin. He's the Trauma Medical Director and the Chief of Surgical Research at the Madigan, the Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. And he's also active colonel in the US Army. My other co-moderator is Dr. Andrew Bernard. He's our Trauma Medical Director at the University of Kentucky. Today we'd like to talk to you about bariatric surgery, its complications, and how to deal with them if you're not a, a bariatric surgeon. So first, I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Martin, Doctors Martin and Dr. Bernard for joining us. It's my pleasure. Yep, great to be here, Levi. So Dr. Martin, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. The reason I uh, asked you to help us with this is that I know you do a large volume of bariatric surgery in your practice. Um, and according to the American College of Surgeons, bariatric surgery in academic medical centers is the most common elective general surgical operation performed. That's a great thing. However, a lot, of our, a lot of the patients may not be able to return to their bariatric center or their surgeon if a complication arises. And for the general and acute care surgeon, maybe that doesn't do any bariatrics or it's in the community, I think it's important if we have a discussion about how do we take care of these post-bariatric surgery complications. So having said that, in this current era of bariatric surgery, from your standpoint, what are the most common
2: operations that are being done for bariatric surgery? Uh yeah, thanks Levi and, and I think you make you make an outstanding point of of this is one of the fastest growing areas of general surgery. Uh and these problems are going to be coming to an ER near you regardless of if you're if you're a bariatric surgeon or not. Uh and, and I think the response has ranged from, you know, general surgeons feeling pretty comfortable taking care of it to some who have just thrown up their hands and said, I don't want to have anything to do with bariatric patients. Uh, so, hopefully, we can talk about some management principles here that will uh, help the acute care surgeon who 's faced with you know these patients who are pretty challenging sometimes um, so So I think the easiest way to classify the type of surgery a patient had and and the the one pearl I would say is it 's very important to correctly identify what their prior surgery was because what you 'll find a lot of times is uh, someone does the history and they 'll lump everything as like a gastric bypass. That's very frequent. You'll see patient had a gastric bypass and they'll actually have had some other procedure, but they're just generally grouped as a bypass. So it's important to actually ask them what they had done. Uh, And and the way to think about it is, is, the basic concept is there's really two ways to make them lose weight. Make their stomach smaller, and that's a restrictive operation make them absorb less, and that's a malabsorptive operation, and every surgery out there is either purely restrictive or it's a combination of restrictive and malabsorption. And so I think that's the first way to categorize them because when, it, when they just had a purely restrictive procedure, you know you're really just focused on the stomach for bariatric complications. When they've had a restrictive malabsorptive procedure, like a gastric bypass, then you have to worry about the stomach but also the small bowel rearrangement. Uh, and so that would be the first step: is accurate identifying what the procedure was. And, and in general, if they've had a surgery in the past ten years, it's going to be one of three procedures: it's going to be a sleeve gastrectomy, a gastric bypass, or an adjustable gastric band. Uh, and, and all three of those definitely have their individual complication profiles.
0: So Matt, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, Matt, are the are the
1: operations basically the same if if uh, patients have pursued uh, I guess you'd call it uh, bariatric surgical tourism. So if they've left the US, is it basically gonna be one of those three as well? And is the distribution
2: of prevalence the same outside the US? Uh, and I would say generally in the last 10 years, if they've had it done and they've gone to you know a developed country that has a bariatric program, it's still gonna be one of those three procedures uh, with some rare variations. And if they've had one of those uncommon variants, uh, and, and probably the common ones you might see are something called a duodenal switch or a vertical banded gastroplasty, uh, those would be ones that I, I think the answer is you need to get a bariatric surgeon involved. Uh, but otherwise, if they've gone, done bariatric tourism, they're still generally the same procedures. Uh, and, and we're seeing this issue, not, not just even going to foreign countries, but people traveling across the country or, uh, you know, we have a lot of go to Canada or Mexico, and then they'll come back and, and they'll be taken care of uh, by a surgeon or an area completely different from where they had their initial surgery. So, so even not, uh, they don't even have to go outside the country to have, you know, the tourism aspect be an issue, uh, you know, if they've had it done in a completely different region. And we can't really
1: expect the patients to know. We just need to get uh, on the phone and get the op note. We need to instruct our residents to. As you say, not lump them into one big group, uh, but figure out what exact procedure the patient had, and to do that, not by asking the patient, who's not going to know precisely, but to get the op note and make reference to it.
2: Yeah, and and not only will finding that information out help you, but you know, talking with the surgeon or at least one of their colleagues who knows exactly what they had done uh, can be incredibly helpful. And in fact, they'll usually you know give you some pointers about hey, here's what to look for, but but actually. Uh, If they've gone through an accredited bariatric program, they actually should be able to, with great detail, tell you about what surgery they've had. Uh, You just need to ask them, uh, you know, because the requirements to have a bariatric surgery now are that they have to go through a very regimented pathway process that usually takes a minimum of two to six months, uh, and that includes education about the surgery that they're having. So, So actually, I find they're among the most knowledgeable patients, and when you ask them, you know, well, what exact surgery did you have? They can usually tell you with with pretty great detail. Because some of them will even tell me, you know, I have a four centimeter pouch, a 150 centimeter Roux limb. Uh, so a lot of them will be able to, to tell you that information. Well, wow.
0: it seems like uh, recently we've we've had kind of a flourish of uh, potentially dealing with acutely uh, uh, in the sleeve gastrectomy scenario, like early complications. Um, and it seems like it's either going to be a bleed or a leak of some degree. Is is there a more beneficial way to approach these from the get go in terms of if it's a leak, should you know, should they all get an upper GI or is an upper GI not sensitive? Should they be getting concomitant C T scans, EGDs? Is it how do you guys approach, assuming they're not clinically in fluorid peritonitis and septic shock, how do you kind of approach them?
2: Yeah, great question. And and great point. The sleeve is the most rapidly increasing operation, uh, and, and a lot of places it's replacing the band, uh, and it's edging out the gastric bypass even in popularity. Uh, and actually along with that, it's, it's viewed as this simpler procedure, which, which is a misconcept because the complications of a sleeve, especially a leak, can be so much harder to manage than a gastric bypass. Uh, but a lot of people have gotten, gotten into the bare-edge game of just doing sleeves because they think it's this simple procedure. So I think we're also seeing a lot more variation in the quality of the sleeves that are being done versus, you know, something like a gastric bypass. Uh, and I think you, you hit the two nails on the head of what what are the things you worry about early on, and generally it's going to be either bleeding or a leak. You know, bleeding is usually relatively evident to pick up Uh, you know they have a dropping hematocrit hemodynamic instability etc and and imaging will usually help pick that up but the leak is is the problem with the sleeve Uh, and and you have that long staple line where you turn the you tubularize the whole stomach and and people often you know worry about a leak anywhere along there but the leaks almost always happen in the exact same predictable spot and it's the worst place you would want to have one it's right at the ge junction uh, where it's, you have the thinnest tissue. Uh, if you get too close, you know, you can actually be on esophagus with your staple line. That's also the, the most avascular part of the stomach. Uh, and then if you add to that any distal problems that raise the pressure, like a narrowing of the sleeve or even just the pressure from the pylorus, creating enough back pressure, these blow out right at the GE junction. And these are horrible problems to manage. Uh, you know, you're often in for just months and months and months, no matter what you do. Uh, as far as how to pick it up, uh, the, the big learning point is g- regular upper GI studies, uh, with either gastrographin or even barium will miss a significant portion of these small leaks. So, so we always do a swallow study followed by a CT scan. Uh, and, and the sensitivity generally is about 60 to 70% with the swallow and the combined swallow CT usually brings it up to 90-95%. So, so with those combined, you'll pick up Almost every leak, and especially if it's a clinically significant leak with the sleeve, so you're talking about two separate radiology procedures. They do a
0: standard upper G i series basically where they drink water sal contrast and then they immediately go and swallow more PO-CT contrast and get a ct scan. Is that what you're saying uh,
2: well generally here we'll do the, we'll do the swallow. Uh, the fluoroscopic swallow and have them drink the contrast, and then they'll go immediately over to CT. Okay. Uh, Sometimes if there's going to be a a delay, they'll give them a little more contrast to drink. Um, You don't have to do that, you know, especially if you're just looking for a leak. It's fine to just give them a reasonable dose of contrast and then do a CT scan. Um, But doing the fluoro study, the reason we do it necessarily isn't to look for the leak that gives us the information about the sleeve size and shape, uh, and tells us if there's a distal stricture, you know, that we have to worry about. And then the CT is the really one we look at for the leak. So, so you can do just go right to the CT and that'll answer you about the leak. Uh, but we find the swallow portion helps us because we're also thinking about, you know, what's the problem that caused this leak? Is this just a, you know, a bad staple line or is it a distal obstruction or stricture? Because it, it's also easy to create narrowings for these, of these sleeves that then cause the leak. And if you don't treat the narrowing, the leak will never heal. So if
0: you have the, so say you have a, you know, a relatively stable patient, they have a small contained leak, you can get it, you know, perk drained if radiology is able to, but now how do you feed this patient? Like, do you place an NG tube to decompress their esophagogastric remnant, basically, and then do you wait them out and restudy them, or do you put them on TPN? Do you place yeah, in like, a and- mineral
2: feeding tube? And, uh, you know, another great question. And that really, that, that really will vary by the patient and the leak. And, and you know, these will range from small, relatively asymptomatic, and, and you perk drain them and give them a couple weeks and they'll close. Those are, those are probably in the minority. Uh, but, but as you said, the first principle is, is you get drainage of that leak and then you have time to decide what to do next. And, and then your two decisions are feeding access and what am I going to do about the leak? And what you do on each of those impacts the other. Uh, generally, you do want to get some distal feeding access. So so either a post-pyloric nasal tube. Uh, if you had to take them back to get that abscess drained or get the leak controlled, uh, you always want to think about just placing a surgical feeding tube because you can count on these patients are going to be in this for the long haul. Sure. And, and getting distal feeding uh, is going to be a huge benefit. Uh, and then you got to figure out what you're going to do about the leak. And I, and I think generally the, uh, the trend has been drifting towards stenting most of these uh, or endoscopic interventions, very small leaks. There's some success with fibrin glue injection and clipping. Uh, any more substantial leak, generally the approach now is to stent them.
0: And if you did have to operate on someone who is in septic shock for this, whether it's laparoscopic or open, how do you deal with the leak? Uh, depend, I mean, obviously depends on the size, but are you patching them with omentum? Are you doing serosal patches with a piece of small bowel? Uh, are there certain things we should be
2: doing or shouldn't? Uh, yeah, so so now you're in the scenario, you're in the OR, and you, you had to go in there, and now you're looking at that hole. Uh, and, and again, it's usually at the GE junction, uh, and, and you've got a couple options there. The, the biggest principle to remember is if you're going to do anything to repair that hull, count on it breaking down. Uh, and so the, the best thing you need to do is get wide drainage. So whatever you do, leave a couple big drains up there and expect that repair to break down. Um, you, can, you can do a primary closure. Uh, if you can budget it with omenum, that's probably the best, simplest thing you can do. Or just patch it with momentum, you know, just like a regular gram patch. Uh, there's more complex reconstructions. Uh, and and really the two definitive surgical options would be to bring a Roux limb up and actually anastomose it to that leak, and that's been pretty well described, uh, but I wouldn't do that in the unstable emergent situation. Uh, And then the other option uh, is to do a a gastrectomy and jejunostomy, and obviously that's also not something you want to be doing in an emergent unstable patient. Uh, so, So if you're in there emergently, you can primarily close it, patch it with omentum. Actually, the other thing that's been pretty well described in a is putting a T-tube, a large T-tube, uh, into that hole uh, and then bringing that out uh, along with the other percutaneous strains, and that's actually had some reasonable success. It seems like the other most common one that we deal with as well is the
0: roux y gastric bypass for a myriad of reasons, whether it's a bowel obstruction uh, or a, per- a perforation. Uh, essentially free air, it seems that we we do know that we have a large population of smoking in our region, so we, we commonly deal with the Roux-en-Y in that they have free air and they have a perforated marginal ulcer. Um, how do you approach these uh, patients that have a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass that present
2: with free air? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bane of our existence, the smoking gastric bypass patient. Uh, and that's exactly it. When when you have someone with a marginal ulcer or a perforation from a gastric bypass, you know the first thing you ask them is, is how many packs a day are you smoking? Because uh, cause it's very rare to get a marginal ulcer that will perforate or won't heal in a non-smoker. Um, so so the first obviously free air. Generally, you're going to be taking them to the operating room. There's not a whole lot of non-operative management of that. Uh, you can do a contrast study. You know if they're if they look very good and are stable. Uh, but our approach to those, our approach to those, first of all, would be to do most of those laparoscopically, Uh and and that'll obviously depend on your comfort level and local expertise. Uh, generally, if you catch them early, uh, there won't be a lot of soilage, uh, there won't be a lot of adhesions up in that area. It's usually a very small perforation, and it's almost always in the anterior midline of the anastomosis or the posterior midline, uh, and, and it's usually a couple millimeter hole. Uh, and these, as opposed to sleeve leaks, these actually are very successfully repaired with just a pri- primary repair and a patch over it, or an metal plug in it, and then leave a drain over top of it. Uh, and, and I haven't had any of these turn into a chronic, prolonged leak problem uh, like we have with the sleeve.
0: And in those patients, do you, when you're in there, do you always consider? Uh, Placing a gastrostomy tube in their gastric remnant as a backup type of enteral access in case this becomes a drawn-out process. I mean, if in someone in your situation who's more skilled than the, you know, the non-bariatric surgeons from a laparoscopic standpoint, your success rate at dealing with these is going to be better than, you know, people like us who don't do that all the time. So for those people who don't do that, is that something that you'd recommend – kind of off the bat while you're in there doing that, is to you know intubate the gastric remnant for a definitive feeding access,
2: or would you just leave it alone? Uh, I generally would leave it alone, uh, but uh, I don't think anybody would fault you for doing that. Uh, in, if you're in a scenario where the remnant is significantly dilated, uh, that's one where I will tend to put a tube in or at least decompress the remnant. That, that's usually more in the bowel obstruction or hernia category. Um, but in, in that scenario, especially if you have a big, complex perforation and, and you know, you're thinking, okay, this is going to turn into the weeks or even months-long thing, uh, then, yeah, I would definitely place a feeding tube in the remnant, and, and that's your best access for feeding. Uh, you don't do a jejunostomy tube in these patients. Put a regular G-tube into the remnant. You know, it, it'll take the normal absorptive pathway, so it's now bypassed their bypass. Uh, and, and it's a great feeding access to have, so uh, you don't want to burn that bridge. But yeah, I would I would definitely do that if I had a lot of concerns about the repair. Uh, but but most of these, like I said, are pretty straightforward small perforations.
1: So Matt, in, in what case do you need to reconstruct the gastrojejunostomy? Uh,
2: really that 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 really comes in more of the non-healing marginal ulcer, and your part of your reason for that. Is that either? Well, there's really a couple reasons for these ulcers not healing. Uh, it's almost always smoking. If it's not smoking, it's usually that the pouch is too large. Um, if you leave a large pouch, that leaves a significant acid-producing capability, which should be gone when you when you make a nice small, you know, modern-type pouch. Uh, so it's so almost always, if these patients aren't smokers, they have a pretty big pouch, and you can point to that as a likely cause. Uh, other ones that you, know, you should always rule out are the, you know NSAID use and uh, hypergastrin syndrome, and so we always check a gastrin level on these patients. Uh, but, but in the absence of that, they have a large pouch and they have a non-healing marginal ulcer. That's usually where we'll take down the gastrogegenostomy. We'll also trim the pouch size down to, you know, what we would consider a, a nice small pouch uh, and then redo the anastomosis. Uh, there's been some literature on adding a, a truncal vagotomy to that, uh, and I think that's fine. Uh, but but both approaches, with or without a vagotomy, of taking down the anastomosis, trimming the pouch down, and redoing it, it have been pretty successful.
1: So you've managed a patient with a uh, with, uh, marginal
2: ulcer who's had a gastric bypass, a PPI post-op? Uh, oh yeah. Yep, all of them get PPIs post op and, and that's probably why, you know, there's there's not a lot of proven benefit of a vagotomy, uh, because just like with gastric ulcer disease in the PPI era, you know, usually you get adequate acid suppression. Yeah, but we, we would put them all on a PPI and usually I'll put them on Caraphate also. Uh and, and that combination is usually effective. And and then of course the you always want to identify H. pylori and treat them uh with H. pylori eradication if they're positive. PPIs in perpetuity for those patients. Uh, if they've had a perfed or non-healing marginal ulcer, yeah, I'll usually put them on a PPI for life.
1: How do you manage uh, a bleeding marginal ulcer? Is your management different? Is it is it, is it resective or is it just uh, open the pouch, identify the bleeding,
2: oversew it, and then uh, close and patch? Yeah, almost all those are managed endoscopically now. Uh, um, with an injection or a clip, uh, I actually, I, I can't think of one in geez, the past eight years I've had to operate on. Uh, if I did have to operate on one, we, we've actually, we've actually had a couple good staple line bleeds, like post-op day two or three from a gastric bypass, um, that couldn't be managed endoscopically. And those we've, we've put a scope down so you can see the bleeder and then laparoscopically, you know, put a suture. Through the through the staple line of the pouch under endoscopic visualization, just suture ligated the bleeder. Um, so, but but most of those can be managed endoscopically, especially the bleeding ulcer. These marginal ulcers are usually very small; they're a couple millimeters, uh, and if you get a bleed, it's usually a very superficial one. I see. In,
0: in terms of the the bowel obstruction, you know, everyone's basically taught it's always adhes hernias or adhesions first. Um, and hernias are can be a large problem with these roux y gastric bypasses, uh, and it, necessarily these are not the type of bowel obstruction. Whether it's due to a hernia or not, I think in the gastric bypass from a roux y standpoint, they deserve very you know acute and proving what is causing it very
2: quickly. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Uh, uh, I mean, you guys you guys probably see a lot of these patients uh, in your ER and uh you know what what's your what's your general approach for the let's say the bypass patient comes in and it looks like a run of the mill small bowel obstruction uh, you know at, at your center uh, w- would they be transferred to a bariatric center do you guys admit them and and manage them do you manage them non-operatively what what's your what are your guys approaches
0: well, we don't really have, uh, we usually are typically the ones that are, uh, obligated to take care of the problem as it comes in, because uh, a lot of these patients, are, we're a regional referral network, but we do have, uh, a few centers of excellence in our, in our own city, but, uh, oftentimes it's, uh, it can be difficult for those patients to get back to their surgeon, and oftentimes they present in rather, uh, almost extremist situations at times, so we're kind of obligated to take care of them when they get here. Uh, most of them come with the obligatory CAT scan that usually doesn't have any, you know, PO contrast or IV contrast for various reasons. So uh, we commonly do very uh, quick, you know, resuscitation and try to define their anatomy with a contrasted scan, assuming they don't need an emergent operation kind of to give us an idea of what their anatomy is uh, and, and do they have the passage of enteral contents that makes sense based on their surgery. Andrew, what do you think?
1: Yeah, same. We end up admitting them. They get a contrast in C T if they haven't had one. And if it looks like bowel obstruction, I swallow them.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's and, and that's a that's a great approach. Um I I think the, the big probably the big teaching point on bowel obstructions and gastric bypass patients. And especially for anybody, you know, about to take their general surgery boards, uh, this seems to be an increasing scenario of, you know, you have the patient comes in bypass a year ago, they lost a hundred pounds, they come in with a bowel obstruction. Uh, and, and I think the teaching point is that's not a patient that is managed like a regular bowel obstruction with NG decompression and observation. You know, that's that, not. that, that patient is an internal hernia until proven otherwise. Uh, and and a lot of people don't connect that, and you'll you'll see the CT scan with the big dilated stomach in the left upper quadrant, and, and a lot of people don't connect that that dilated stomach. Your NG tube isn't getting anywhere near that. That's the remnant. No. And that's disconnected, uh, and getting that patient decompressed is an emergency. Uh, one, they can blow out the remnant, but the other the other thing is an internal hernia means threatened bowel, and and. This is actually a very increasing cause of referrals for small bowel transplantation. Our bariatric patients who are losing most or all their small bowel because of delayed recognition of an internal hernia. Uh, so, so in our practice, if they, have, if they come in with a small bowel obstruction, uh, unless it's some very, very minor uh, or questionable call, but if they have a true small bowel obstruction, we take them to the OR. Again, we, we put a laparoscope in them. Uh, and we look for the internal hernia, reduce it, uh, and then that's a great scenario. If they have a if they have a massively distended remnant, uh, I'll put a tube in to not so much for long term feeding access because usually they'll recover pretty quickly, but definitely to uh, decompress that remnant uh, in the acute post op period. Because that can be
0: we often have their internal hernias and they can potentially lose massive amounts of small bowel and as you discussed it's an it's an increasing complication or an increasing referral base for intestinal transplant. So you 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 identify the hernia, you resect or reduce the hernia as necessary. How do you do you just stitch close the, the defect or do you take any other extra precautions to try to prevent this reherniation in the future?
2: Uh yeah. And uh hey. Great point, and, and there's a couple of real good technical tips for approaching these patients. And, and first off, just doing it open uh, is no problem. You know, you are much better off opening that patient and getting them reduced rather than you know messing around laparoscopically, depending on your comfort level. Um, but the the tendency is when you either put a scope in or do it open, is you you go up and find the proximal the gastrojejunostomy and then run it distally. And what happens then is you'll typically, you'll run that Roux limb and you'll come to the small bowel anastomosis and it'll be twisted in a knot like a pretzel and you'll try and pull and pull on that Roux limb and it just won't budge. And it's especially challenging laparoscopically. Um, and and the tip there is you, you just stop. Uh, you don't even try to approach it that way. Point your scope down to the right lower quadrant just like you're doing a lap Identify the terminal ileum and then run that backwards. And that will, in 90% of the cases, just running that back to the anastomosis will reduce the internal hernia. Because the internal hernia is that that distal common channel that's herniated under and twisted. Uh, And so if you run that from distal to proximal, it pulls out very easily. The anastomosis just suddenly flips into its normal position, and now the hernia is reduced. And as long as you don't have threatened bowel, you don't have to do a bowel resection. uh, But you do have to suture that defect closed. Uh, the, the nice thing is that this is usually, it usually happens because they've lost a lot of weight. Everyone, or most everyone closes these defects when we do a gastric bypass, but you're suturing fat to fat, uh, and when they lose the weight, that's why these all open up, but once they're, you know, a year or so out, they're at their general bottom weight, so you, when you suture these closed, you really don't have to worry about it opening up again because they're not going to have another 100-pound weight loss and lose all that mesenteric fat.
0: And in the, there's a syllabus for the listeners that we'll post on the website that shows great pictures of these uh, internal hernias. But specifically, there's some very important findings on the CAT scan that are delineated here, uh, such as a swirl sign. What? Why is that important when you're evaluating in these scans to look for that?
2: Yeah, and, and the point there is that there are no 100% reliable imaging findings uh, for an internal hernia. Uh, so so again, that's that's another reason our default is to take them to the OR if they have a small bowel obstruction, uh, even if the CT you know can't see an intrahernia hernia, uh, or the gastric bypass patient who just has chronic abdominal pain, uh, we'll see a lot of them and we work them up. And then when we don't have an answer, the last step is we put a scope in them, uh, and many times we'll find they have an intrahernia hernia that's intermittently obstructing. Uh, but looking at the CT scan. Uh, the most reliable sign is what's called the swirl sign, and that's just a, a twisting of the mesenteric vessels, and, and you'll see them spinning around like a, a bullseye sign almost. And that's, that just reflects that it's usually the anastomosis is, is twisted at least 360 degrees. Uh, a couple other reliable signs or things to look for are look for your gastric remnant and duodenum and see if they're dilated. Uh, if they are, that tells you the... The obstruction is either at the anastomosis or distal to it. Uh, all of the small bowel in these patients should be inferior to the colon and, and generally on the right side. So if you have left upper quadrant small bowel loops, that's another sign of an intrahernia because they had to herniate up underneath your anastomosis to get up to the left upper quadrant. Uh, and those are probably the three, the three biggest signs, specific signs of an interhernia. Other than the other typical signs of a small bowel obstruction. Hey Matt, I want to ask you for uh, to expand on something you said earlier. Um,
1: I told you my approach is to scan and then use an upper GI contrast study right away, not uh, the usual small bowel obstruction that doesn't resolve. Go to gastrograph and challenge, but mm-hmm. but right away upper GI contrast study to see that in a dynamic study to assure me that there's not an internal hernia. Um, are you suggesting that? that's not a satisfactory algorithm, but rather that in any patient with a gastric bypass, the algorithm is a simple one line that's direct to the operating room? Is that how we have to manage every patient with gastric bypass, with with the presence of bowel obstruction? Uh, I,
2: I think if they have a true bowel obstruction, uh, then your safest approach is to take them to the operating room and, and put a scope in. Uh, and this this is generally the patient who's out far enough that you're not in the you know immediate early post-op period. You know if you're two weeks and they have an early post-op bowel obstruction, that's usually an adhesion or something, and you treat that like any other. Um, so so these are generally the patients who are six months, twelve months out, and and it usually happens when they've lost their most weight because that's when that mesenteric fat goes away and that defect opens up. Um, and 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 this is the person with the true bowel obstruction, and they've got the remnant is dilated. And they've got significantly dilated bowel, uh, but if you know if you see the patient who's got an equivocal bowel obstruction or you know it looks like a mild, early, partial bowel obstruction, and you've got a good quality CT that shows no concerning signs of an internal hernia, then yeah, I, I think your approach is perfectly reasonable, and you can give them a gastrograph challenge. And if you see it go through, and if their symptoms resolve quickly, th- then that's great. Um, you know what you don't want to do is miss an internal hernia and sit on someone. But generally, it's not going to be subtle if they truly have an internal hernia, especially with threatened bowel. You know, they'll be having significant severe pain and they won't respond to the standard small bowel uh, treatment maneuvers.
0: I see. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. In turn, ter- uh, another common, uh, kind of one of the last things about the Ruin en y just from our own experience that we deal with, is the dreaded colidoculathiasis after Ruin y gastric bypass. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously many avenues this can go down depending on the disease severity of the patient, but uh, what kind of what's your all's uh, approach? And, you know, in centers that don't have people with advanced endoscopy or laparoscopy, should they be
2: dealing with this there or should they be sending them somewhere else? Uh, yeah, and and, and another, that's another great point is the, these patients develop the common problems like anyone else. So, uh, you know, every abdominal pain isn't a leak. Work them up for gallstones and appendicitis and diverticulitis, uh, but the, the and they're all treated exactly the same as a non-bariatric patient, except you're right for the gallstone issue, uh, and, and obviously the the gallbladder and cholecystitis part is is essentially the same, but it's when you get common duct pathology that that becomes a problem. Because now, other than, you know, there are some, some uh, Houdini gastroenterologists who have worked their way, you know, back up a Rue limb 100 centimeters to get there with a scope to do an ERCP. Uh, unless you have Houdini as your gastroenterologist, you're, you're generally not gonna have one who can get there to do an ERCP. Uh, so, you, so you're right, so your problem is now what do you do about a common duct stone? that's really the challenging part of a gastric bypass patient. So, so first principle is if if we take their gallbladder out, uh either concurrently with their bariatric procedure or, you know, post op, uh, you know, a year later they have gallstones and and have it out, we always shoot a cholangiogram uh so we can know if there's common duct stones and and deal with them then. Whether they have any problems or not of, yeah. of common duct disease. Yeah, yeah, without it's just yeah. empiric cholangiography. Yeah. yeah, I do selective intra-cholangiography, except in a bypass patient, I'll always do it, just because it's so hard to deal sure. with those stones if you miss them. But, but yeah, so your issue is you have a common duct stone, uh, and what do you do with it? Um, one, uh, one good option, depending on your resources, is a uh, percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography. Uh, and our, at least our interventional radiology guys, I've been really impressed at the stuff they've been able to handle with a the PTC. Um, they've been able to go in, do a common duct, uh, a cholangiogram, and pull out stones, uh, even place stents. Your um, other option is to do a, uh, a laparoscopic assisted ERCP, where you can put a scope in and, and access the remnant, just like you were talking about for putting a feeding tube in. Uh, except access it and have the gastroenterologist put the scope through the either the abdominal wall or you can even put a trocar right into the remnant, and then they can put their scope mm-hmm. into the remnant and and do a standard ERCP just like they would in any other patient. Uh, and then of course your third option is is always just to do a, uh, a laparoscopic or open common duct exploration. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a that's a disappearing skill for most of us. Uh, you know, unless you do a lot of them, and I do a lot of laparoscopy, and I don't do a lot of lap common ducts, uh, so that's really the I, you know the, the final fallback. I, I would do the PTC or the transgastric ERCP.
1: Matt, you think uh, lap or open common duct exploration is uh, going by the way, that... Oh, oh, oh I just
2: I just think both. You know, the skills for doing both are, are disappearing. Just because
1: uh, because radiology is becoming so much more capable
2: now. Yeah, it's it's so uncommon. We have a situation, and, and you know, even a lot of times, you know, well, if you do a cholangiogram, identify a common duct stone, and you do a couple easy maneuvers, uh, you know, I would say most people would probably just close and then get a post-op ERCP these days. Uh, I, I know trying to get a common duct going in ROR is often uh, can be a fiasco, and just identifying all the equipment. And again, we we just don't do it very often. And I would still, if it were me or my family, I would want them to have the ERCP versus start messing around trying to instrument their common duct.
1: Right. Uh, Matt, my read of the literature is that there's growing support for performing cholecystectomy at the time of the bariatric surgical procedure. Is that your read of the literature, and do you think this will be a less common problem in the future?
2: Uh, actually, I think it's going to be a more common problem. Um, the reason is we've generally gotten away from doing a concurrent cholecystectomy in most patients. Uh, it, it used to be done a lot more commonly because we were doing most of these operations open. Uh, and, and the thought was, you know, you're, you're burning a bridge for a future lap chole, so take it out then. Some people do an appendectomy as well. Uh, they call it you know, rigging them for silent running. <laughs> But uh, but since now almost all these are done laparoscopically, it doesn't really burn any bridges. They can always go back and have a lap coli. Uh, so most practices, I think, are pretty similar to ours, which are, uh, unless they have stones or known biliary pathology or symptoms, uh, we leave their gallbladder in. And generally, the numbers are about 10 to 15% will develop a gallbladder problem and need a cholecystectomy over the next 10 years. So you know, and we counsel them that and tell them they have a ninety eighty, ninety percent chance they won't need their gallbladder out and most of them won't want it out. So so actually I think you're gonna be you'll see a lot more bariatric patients with their gallbladder intact because we take them out a lot less now uh when we do these procedures laparoscopically. So that so more work for both of you guys. Perfect. Well
0: we're happy to do it. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of the, the other one that, uh. Well, actually,
2: let, let, let me ask you. So, so what have you, what have your guys' approaches been? You get one of these patients who's got a common duct stone. What, what are you guys doing at your center? Is so it if IR they, or GI or?
0: Yeah, if they present really sick with cholangitis, we'll usually try to get them a PTC and temporize them with antibiotics and kind of let them get better and then plan for, uh, usually we plan for trying to get, uh, we have pretty good endoscopists here who will assist in the OR with us accessing the remnant and then them trying to do the ERCP through the remnant. But uh, that's typically how we try to do it. I I can't remember the last time we've done an open command duct. Andrew, can you remember for one of these?
1: No, I was going to say I've done all of the above. I've done PTC. I've LAP-assisted for the insertion of an ERCP scope uh, in the operating room. And I've done uh, lap coli with a lap common duct exploration. So I've I've tried all of these, and um, they all have their own
2: challenges, just as Matt outlined. Yeah, well, and that's and that's great that you guys are handling those. I, I know a lot of places, the general surgeons or acute care surgeon will just you know throw up their hands and say I I'm not dealing with it. You know you got to send it to send it to a bariatric center. And, and as you mentioned, sometimes you just you can't get these patients uh you know to to a bariatric center and and you guys are on the front lines managing it uh, and it's great training for the residents
0: yeah it's no doubt great training for the residents they they know all of the things uh to take care of for most of these gastric bypass complications just because we have such an influx of them despite the fact that we don't do any bariatric surgery in our institution so it's good for them uh yeah, well there's nowhere to run or hide from it these days no it's only going <laughs> to get more and more common too in terms of the gastric band, uh, I have a few questions about these things. Number one, if it doesn't work, should these things be staying in that
2: human being or should they be coming out? Uh, it, it depends how long they've had it and, uh you know, whether it's caused them any problems or not. I, I think if they're not using it and it's not doing anything, I, I would have it removed. Um, you know, there's a small percentage of patients that the band works great for. Uh, the problem is there's no way to identify them up front. So so if you look at the literature, you know, the true success rate of these is about one of three patients will have meaningful sustained weight loss. The other two of the three will not lose a significant amount of weight uh and or will need the band removed or revised within five years. Uh And, and that's probably, and, and also it's the most intense follow-up. They need to keep coming in for adjustments, uh, and it's an art of completely artificial means of weight loss. It's just it's just a choker on the upper stomach, and then all that contributes to why it definitely has the lowest success rate, and probably why it's it's being pretty quickly abandoned in favor of the sleeve and even the gastric bypass.
0: It seems like one of the main com- or the main problems that we see is that they had they're they're sent to us with a lot of pain uh, and some problems some some difficulty with eating and drinking, but not always uh and then we're left with is this thing ero like how the correct amount of workup for this you know uh, ct scan doesn't always sell the picture uh, plain film doesn't uh and then an upper gi may or may not tell you if it's working uh do all these people need to be scoped as well if they have these problems that are not being explained
2: by your routine imaging yeah so so the workup of the band patient is a whole entity to itself but but fortunately it's relatively simple um, and because the problems they come in with are generally dysphagia-type problems, uh, and, and your concerns should be, is the band too tight, is the band out of position, or is the band eroding? And, and it's almost always going to be one of those three. Uh, and, and the way to start the evaluation is just a simple, plain AP x-ray uh, to look at the band and see if it's in position, uh, and, and uh, any of the listeners can pull up the handout uh, on the TraumaCast website that's associated with this podcast, and it shows a very nice picture of this. Um, but when you look at the x-ray, the band should look like a hockey puck that you're looking at from the end on. And if you draw a straight line through the middle of the spinal column and then a straight line through the band and measure that angle, it should be at about a 45-degree angle to the spine. That's called the phi angle. If the band slips... It slips downward and that angle increases. So it increases to, you know, 60 to 90 degrees. So any phi angle above 58 degrees generally means that you're pretty confident the band has slipped. And that's all just with one plain x-ray. Uh, and if the band has slipped, that makes it very easy. The band should be removed, either emergently or it can be done semi-electively depending on their symptoms. Uh, the other nice thing is that the majority of the problems with the bands can be solved by deflating the band. Uh, so even a slip band uh, that's you know now is a choker on the middle of the stomach and, and causing a lot of symptoms, a lot of times if you take the fluid out of the band, which is just accessing their port, just like a, you would a uh the band the symptoms will go away, and a lot of times the band will slip back into its normal position. Uh, so, so first maneuver for these patients often is just take the fluid out of their band. And that usually converts it to an elective problem. Uh, and now, with your X-ray, you've identified if the band is in position and it's just too tight, or if it's slipped. The only other possibility then is the band eroding. Uh, and 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 this is a big misconception people have. They think of when you think of erosion, you think of this band eroding into the stomach and causing a perforation and leak, and they're going to present with a, a gastric perforation and sick. Um, that's not what happens with an erosion the band slowly erodes its way into the stomach, very slowly, and so it closes over itself, almost like a seaton, a cutting ceton. So what happens is the band just works its way and eventually ends up in the lumen of the stomach, uh, and the, the stomach externally is sealed over it. So there's no, there's no perforation, there's no leak, but your band is now inside your stomach. Uh, and so the usual symptom of erosion is that the patient loses all the restriction they had with the band, so they just don't feel the band is in place anymore because it's not. It's inside their stomach. Um, a CT scan will almost always show you that, and, and then an endoscope will confirm that. And a lot of times now we can even just remove these with an endoscope. Yeah, that's them, what I was going to ask
0: you because we've, we've tried that here, but uh, if you're not a center that takes these out often, I can tell you that uh, sourcing out the random toolbox of parts to do that can be somewhat tricky. So what is your standard set of, particularly your mechanical lithotripser, which, like, what's your standard type of uh, set of instruments and tools that you use to endoscopically pull that out?
2: And, And, and that being said, uh, most of the time you'll identify these and they'll be partially eroded. So it'll be, it'll be three quarters into the stomach and the rest of it out. Um, and your options there are to remove it, uh, but, that's going to require that generally requires a combined endoscopic laparoscopic procedure um where you you cut it externally flush with where it's going into the stomach, and then the scope you can just snare it and pull it and now that it's been disconnected from the external part, it'll pull right out and then that that leaves a little hole there obviously that where it eroded and all you do is suture that uh the other option that I think is becoming more prevalent is. People just wait them out and say, let it finish eroding into the stomach. I haven't, I haven't been that comfortable with that approach yet. Uh, so I haven't done any of these purely endoscopically. Uh, if you're gonna do them, you're right, you do need the kind of the advanced toolkit of an endoscope, which includes a, a good snare, but, uh, it includes something that can cut through the band. And these bands are, can be pretty substantial. So that can be difficult to do purely endoscopically. Uh, but generally uh, a combined laparoscopic endoscopic procedure is pretty straightforward.
0: Well, I think this has been a lot of great information. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't really have any more questions unless Andrew has anything else he'd like to add.
1: Sorry, I was muted. I had, I had one, one question that I forgot to ask Matt earlier when we were talking about gastric bypassing. And that is, are there scenarios that you think about in your head where you would use reconstruction of the gastro gastrostomy reconstruction of the stomach restoration of uh gastro gastric continuity as a strategy
2: uh sure so so that would generally be for a gastric bypass patient um so reversal of a gastric bypass um extremely uncommon uh especially in today's practice just cuz we we get such good results with it we almost we almost it would be for the patient who is either having some intractable pathology or the failure to thrive patient uh, and we almost never see the the failure to thrive malnutrition from a gastric bypass these days i mean it's incredibly rare um there was just a case series that you know wrote these up and reported them, and, and I think they found six or seven cases over over like a ten year period at a high volume bariatric center. Um, so, so in those very rare scenarios, and I, I've had to reverse I think one or two, and it was a a failure to thrive patient that had you know it was associated psych and pain medication issues and and malnutrition issues all combined. Um, it is relatively straightforward to reconnect them. Uh, we we tell patients the gastric bypass don't think of it as reversible, but in reality it is. Uh, and, and you can do either a linear or a circular stapled simple gastrogastrostomy. You're right, and, and reconnect them. Uh, in my experience, I found that oftentimes some of their functional symptoms, even when you return them to normal anatomy, don't completely resolve. Uh, so, so again, I haven't seen anybody without major psych issues who's needed a Reversal of a bypass. Yeah. The only the other area where you're seeing some of this described now is actually in the patient with uh, marginal ulcer issues. Uh, and there's now some literature on reconnecting their stomach and converting them to a sleeve gastrectomy from a gastric bypass um, because that doesn't generate marginal ulcers. So, so the patient whose marginal ulcer just won't heal, won't heal. They'll reconnect their stomach. Do a standard sleeve gastrectomy and, and then reverse the small bowel bypass. And, and now they've essentially been converted to a sleeve, uh, which doesn't really carry a risk of marginal ulceration. Uh, that's probably the only other area you'll, you'll see that talked about with reconnecting the stomach. I see. Yes, I can think of the scenario where we performed
1: one here in the context of seems like very large destructive ulcer. You know, um, a marginal ulcer with perforation, I forget what the exact scenario was, but uh, the operating surgeon, it wasn't my case, felt like the only way they could restore or maintain gastrointestinal continuity at all was either a completion Asterectomy, uh, or constructing a GG as an out. Uh, so in this case, they constructed a GG. But as you say, I can't imagine that distal stomach having normal
2: function at all. Yeah, case. but that's uh, that's a, I mean, that's a very very good option. I think that they took in that scenario. Um, they they won't get a marginal ulcer again. Uh, You know, they might have some functional issues. Uh, but that does seem to work pretty well for the refractory marginal ulcer. This Andrew's is really helpful. Go ahead.
0: No, go ahead. I was going to say, Andrew's question reminded me of a kind of a, not necessarily a side question, but we also take care of a lot of critically ill patients who've had a gastric bypass and they're sick from some other cause. And then I always struggle with, well, how do you How and how long do you feed them, and do you use a different type of enteral nutrition in them, meaning do you use elemental and do you feed them for many, many, uh, you know, weeks longer than you would for the patient who doesn't have a malabsorptive gastric bypass so that they have, you know, a greater increase in nutrition over time?
2: Yeah, and and that's, that's actually a great point about the other situation where you might consider reversing them is that patient. You know, the one who now they're running into some major health problem. Uh, we had a couple patients who developed, you know, severe Crohn's disease issues. They had, they didn't have a diagnosis. They had a gastric bypass when they're younger and then they get diagnosed with Crohn's disease and then they're failing to thrive and having malnutrition. Or we have had a couple patients with, uh, you know, different malignancies and they're malnourished and, and what do you do for that patient? Uh, the simplest thing I think is is you put a feeding tube into their gastric remnant. Uh, that's a great option. And, and again, remember that that now that now reverses their bypass because you're feeding to their normal GI tract again. Um, and then if you really need to reverse a more long term, uh, as we just talked about, uh, you can do a a complete reversal, hook their stomach back up. Uh, or occasionally, uh, we've shortened their limb as much as possible to re- to reverse the malabsorptive component. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't, you, you don't need to give them elemental feeds or really anything uh, you know, special versus standard nutrition. Uh, and, and that's probably another common misperception. The gastric bypass is actually very minimally malabsorptive. You know, a, a 50 to 150 centimeter limb gives them a small amount of malabsorption. Uh, which which is very easy to overcome. Um, uh, They they generally don't, and they don't develop, we don't see malabsorptive uh, syndromes with the gastric bypass. Uh, The the only real highly malabsorptive operation that's done today is is, is called the duodenal switch. That's a malabsorptive operation. The, The bypass is kind of, it's adding a little bit of malabsorption to a highly restrictive operation. Uh, so, so I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily change their feeding regimen. You don't need to do elemental feeds. They still have plenty of small bowel absorptive capacity even if you feed them through their esophagus and use the gastric remnant. It's a great access uh, for a good feeding route.
0: Well, I think this has been a great discussion and again, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. There's also going to be the syllabus on the uh, website that you can download uh, that way you can refer to as you're listening to this. It has great, uh, amount of material that Dr. Martin has generated with good pictures and uh, great bolded points that we all like to see. So I'd like to again thank you Dr. Martin for taking the time to talk to us and my co-moderator Dr. Bernard. It's been great. Matt, thank you. Levi, it was terrific. Well done. Yeah,
2: thanks Andrew and Levi. Great talking to you.
0: So uh, on behalf of all the listeners, again I'd like to thank you for your time in this podcast. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. And that wraps up another TraumaCast brought to you by the online education section for the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great online educational and career resources on the website, www.east.org. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the TraumaCast series, so you don't miss any of our upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting edge science and research, networking, building relationships, and career development, remember, all that you need to do is look to the East.